All right, so this morning we are in 1 Peter chapter 4, and we are going to cover the whole chapter. We did chapter 3 last week, we'll do chapter 4 this week, and then next week we'll wrap it up with chapter 5. So just so happened to kind of break evenly into chapters this last few weeks. Let me pray for us, and then we'll do some recap of chapter 3 last week. Heavenly Father, we come before you. Thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the joy and privilege of gathering, to, uh, gathering together to worship you on the Lord's Day this morning. Lord, we pray your blessing as we um, study chapter 4 of 1 Peter. Pray that you give us grace, Lord, to uh, understand your word, to apply it rightly, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, um, to uh, endure suffering with patience, and to love one another well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so last week we covered chapter 3, um, and we continued in the middle of this section that Peter began in, in chapter 2, talking about uh, humility and submission and these different uh, spheres of life that we find ourselves in. Uh, we talked about husbands and wives, uh, humility and submission in the family, how wives are called to submit to husbands, um, even unbelieving husbands. And Peter painted this contrast between uh, the adorning, the, the vanities of fashion that people tend to devote lots of time to, their physical appearance, versus the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So he described that this submission, this humility, uh, good works are evidence of faith, and they are beautiful to the Lord, and that is what should characterize us. That should be the fragrance of our lives, um, especially uh, to, in, uh, to wives in this case. And then he challenged husbands to know their wives, to love them, uh, to exhibit uh, loving and considerate leadership in the home, to serve them, to view and treat them as precious. Um, and then he addressed the church. He talked about humility in the church, how we are to have uh, this unity of mind that he described, a humble uh, mind, a tender heart, sympathy, uh, the mind of Christ. We talked about Philippians 2 last week. Paul uses uh, similar language describing this humility that we're to have uh, as we interact with one another. Um, and that kind of humility is what enables us to forgive one another and to serve one another well. Um, and then he started talking about uh, the church's experience of suffering and our response to it and to persecution. And that will be a main focus of our uh, time together this morning as well. How do we respond to suffering? Um, and so last week, Peter described uh, that our response means that we are not to retaliate. Believers are, are not to repay evil for evil. Uh, but to repay evil with good. And we read Psalm 34, which Peter has been quoting uh, repeatedly in First Peter. And he described that we are to fear God alone, that we are not to fear the future, we're not to fear persecution, but to honor the, the Lord as holy in our hearts. Um, and then finally, we defend the faith with gentleness and respect and a good conscience, right? Our lives should be this matching uh, testimony to the, the words of our, our mouths, um, and finally, he talked about Christ, uh, this example of Christ in unjust suffering, and how God used that for good, for our salvation. Um, and then we had that kind of confusing text where he talks about baptism and Noah, um, and how baptism it was related to the flood and signifies our union with Christ. So this week, we're going to pick up in chapter 4, verse 1, and we'll take this in, in three chunks. So we're going to do verses 1 to 6 first. 1 Peter 4, 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh 
no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though uh, judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. First Peter 4.1, Peter returns to this concept of um, how do we respond to suffering, and he references the example of Christ, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Um, so we follow Christ's example of suffering. We follow in his footsteps as we endure this persecution, the hostility of the world. Um, and we are to have the same way of thinking. Uh, again, Philippians 2, this, the mind of Christ, this mind of humility, that, it, that means that we submit ourselves to God's sovereign will and to his plan for us, which will involve some measure of suffering. So it's this submission to the will of God that we're trusting in his, uh, his providence. Um, and Peter describes this, uh, this language here, arm yourselves, you know, like prepare for battle, prepare for the battle of the mind. So we need to believe the sovereignty of God. We need to rest and trust in the goodness of God um, because these, you know, the fiery darts that Paul describes in Ephesians 6 um, they can, you know, especially lodge in the heart during suffering, right? Cause us to doubt God's goodness to us. Um, and so this is this arming ourselves, preparing our minds. Uh, we should not be surprised by suffering. We should expect suffering. And he'll say that explicitly in verse 12 uh, later on. So we arm ourselves. Um, and Peter continues and says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Um, so this does not mean that if you suffer for Christ in this life that you will no longer sin after that point, right? He's not saying that as soon as you've experienced some suffering, uh, you are you know, a sinless being or, or not acting out on sin. Um, what he's saying is that we are participants in Christ's victory over sin uh, through his suffering on the cross. So this is really describing union with Christ. Uh, it means that we've died with him and we've been raised with him. Uh, this is what Paul describes in Romans 6, Verses 11 through 13. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So what he's saying is that we should view ourselves as dead to sin. That's what Paul is describing here. Um, Edmund Clowney pointed out that the believer's life post-conversion is, it must be, shaped by new desires. Right? We're free from this bondage to sin. We should now be motivated by the will of God. So the believer is fundamentally different, even though we're still fighting sin until the day that we die. So essentially what Peter is saying is, we're dead to sin, and we should therefore live like it. And hence, verse 3, he continues in this theme, for the time that is past suffices for, what the gen- for doing what the Gentiles want to do, right? He lists this kind of litany of this sinful behavior, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Um, this is very similar to several passages of uh, Paul's epistles as well, uh, citing this contrast between the old and the new man. Uh, Ephesians four seventeen to 19, 
Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. So we have a similar contrast here in Ephesians. And a similar uh, contrast again in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So what all of these passages are highlighting is this, these two ways of life that, that, is, that Peter is contrasting here. That the believer lives for the will of God, right? The time that is past suffices for what they're doing, doing the Gentiles what to do, want to do. And the Gentiles, or unbelievers, are living for these sinful passions, right? So these uh, behaviors characterize believers before their conversion, but they can do so no longer. Right? These are the, th- the things that Peter described earlier, wage war against our souls. Right? These behaviors cannot coexist with the spirit of God sanctifying a believer. Right? Uh, Christ said, you cannot serve two masters, right? and that's true of, of these kind of behaviors. Um, Bill Harrell uh, described these as lusts that deaden us, to the, the deaden people to the reality of divine judgment. These are these things that kind of induce stupor. Uh, Peter has talked multiple times about the sobriety of living that we should have, um, and these are some of the deadly distractions, right, that is the opposite of living uh, sober-minded life. So we are to be putting sin to death, um, and that kind of restraint is surprising to the world around us. And so Peter continues in verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, right? And so restraint, in some sense, is always a surprise to people who are dominated by their passions because they, ha- they don't have that paradigm, right? There is no self-control there. Uh, they can't fathom not, in, you know, indulging whatever pleasure, you know, whatever, whatever pleasure strikes them at the moment. Um, and in many ways, this feels like the mantra of our age, right, that uh, restraint is described as evil, um, it's, you know, it's wrong to speak against anyone indulging pretty much any desire that they have, right? We've been, been uh, our society's embraced this idea uh, that our identity and self-fulfillment are found in indulging these passions, especially sexual ones, sexual identity that Matt was teaching on uh, a couple months ago. Right? This is what it means to be a fully matured and happy person, right, is to indulge whatever sexual passions you have. Um, and so Peter describes this flood of debauchery, and then he describes that they malign you for not engaging in this, right? So they are maligning believers for exercising restraint and witnessing, but that restraint witnesses to the truth that such behavior is wrong, that it's an abomination in the eyes of the Lord. Um, So in many ways, our culture is very similar, actually, to the time period in which Peter was writing. Uh, Matthew Henry um, described that this, you know, restraint is evidence of true faith, right? It's evidence of conversion and regeneration, uh, that the believer is being sanctified. He's no longer uh, running in the same direction as the unbeliever. And I like this quote in Matthew Henry's commentary. 
Uh, he says, the temper and behavior of true Christians seem very strange to ungodly men, that they should despise that which everyone else is fond of, that they should believe many things which to others seem incredible, that they should delight in what is irksome and tedious, be zealous where they have no visible interest to serve, and depend so much upon hope is what the ungodly cannot comprehend. There's, you know, Peter is very clear there's these two types of people in the world. And I like in Matthew Henry's quote, right, he's, he's saying it's not only what we don't do, right, this restraint that separates us from uh, unbelievers and uh, is hard for them to understand, but also the hope we have, right, which Peter talked about uh, in chapter 3 as well. It's this, you know, he, Matthew Henry says, depend so much upon hope. It's this hope that is the content of our witness, right? We're to give uh, defense for the reason for the hope that is in us. So we have this uh, maligning by unbelievers. Um, and then uh, Peter says in verse 5 that though they malign you, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. All right, so while unbelievers might be judging and maligning believers for their piety and probably for the uncomfortable kind of prick of conscience uh, that such disciplined and holy lives brings to them, Peter's reminding his believers that there is a real judge, a final judge, who will hold everyone accountable for their actions. Right, so there's, a, the, you know, there, there's this a judgment that's being experienced uh, by the church. The world is judging the church, right? but Peter's reminding them that that is not the, the judgment that matters. Right? There, there is another judgment that is the ultimate judgment. Um, and so this is where the fear of the Lord that we've been talking about really comes into play, I think. Uh, the unbeliever will stand before God and give account for his actions, but there's no fear of God that might cause him to consider his ways, right, and to exercise restraint and to live according to God's word. I think that's what Psalm 14:1 says, right? The fool in his heart says there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good, right? And so out of this statement, there is no God, the result of that is these, these abominable deeds. Um, and so by contrast, then, that's the fear of the Lord that prevents a believer uh, from cheap grace, right? From sinning all the more that grace may abound, right? And so this is why Peter instructs the church in chapter 1 to conduct themselves with fear throughout the time of their exile. Right? The cost of redemption is so great that uh, wanton sinning, just kind of sinning without restraint, is not a sign of saving faith, right? It's the opposite. Um, saving faith is awed by the cost of redemption and strives for holiness and gratitude. So this verse is, it should be a comfort and a consolation to believers who are experiencing this reviling of the world, that though they, uh, though they are uh, experiencing this ridicule and this scorn, um, that, you know, the, the world will give account to God on the last day, and that's an encouragement. And it's a, a, a challenge also for us to persevere, to maintain the profession of our faith, to not bow to social pressure, to conform to this present evil age. So then Peter continues our last verse in this paragraph. Uh, For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, uh, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Um, this has caused some uh, confusion among some people reading this. What is, people, what is Peter talking about when he describes those who are dead? Uh, so who are the dead that he's talking about here? Uh, Peter is referring to um, Christian dead. He's talking, to, uh, talking about believers who heard the gospel while they were living, uh, but since have died, have, have gone to heaven. Um, and this is meant to be encouragement to the church that 
the gospel was preached to those former members in the, in the you know, first century church who have passed away, and that though they died, they are alive in the Spirit. They're alive in Christ. And since Christ is this righteous judge, those who are dead in Christ will be vindicated by him in this judgment that Peter spoke of in verse 5. Um, the death of Christians posed somewhat of a problem for the early church, uh, because in that time period, they, some of them were expecting you know, a kind of imminent return of Christ. And so there was a concern that you know, believers who died before that happened, had they missed out on uh, the promise of Christ's return, and perhaps especially those who had been martyred, who died under human judgment, you know, judged according to the flesh. Um, and Peter is telling them, no, they believed Christ. Christ was preached, they believed, and that believing brought about this decisive change in their status before God. Uh, Dennis last week described Christ as the first fruits of this great harvest. And Peter's saying the same thing, right? That they, they are participating in that harvest, that believers will be raised body and soul. And so he describes here that they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Um, and I think it's easy to kind of read that at a surface level as meaning just our souls. But I think Peter is... Um, he, he's not describing just living as disembodied uh, beings here, but he's actually saying that they'll be bodily raised in perfection, they'll be raised with perfect bodies. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 48, Paul says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So that similar term there, a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. All right, so we have this natural body versus spiritual body, which is parallel to judging the flesh but made alive in the spirit. And so what Peter is describing is that this judgment of God uh, will silence the maligning of unbelievers and will vindicate the saints who have been made alive in the Spirit, united with Christ, and will be bodily raised in perfection. Go ahead. Honestly, I haven't gone into this and studied it like you know, preparation today. But um, it's instructed that verse 6, that was the purpose of creation, even to those who were dead. And I understand your saying, and I don't disagree. I think it's, it's, it's good, but what do you do with the, um, we were dead in our trespasses and sins before we were saved, before we were made alive and, and lived in the spirit of the God? You're taking it as like a uh, spiritually dead. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know, have you, heard, have you read anything that would, uh, that might be the case as well? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's definitely, that's definitely true, right, that we were spiritually dead, and that's one way to, to, I think, understand what Peter is saying here, that we were spiritually dead, and now we've been made alive in Christ. Uh, most, uh, pretty much all the commentators that I read were describing it as physically dead, those who, who heard the gospel while they were alive but are now physically dead. <laughs> but yes, but no, but it is true, right, that we are spiritually dead, and now we've been made alive in Christ. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Yeah, any other questions? This is kind of the end of this paragraph, so we'll jump into to verse 7 unless anyone else has another thought. Verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 
Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter describes the end of all things is at hand in verse 7. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Uh, So this phrase, the end of all things is at hand, uh, what Peter is saying here is that these believers were living in the last days, and so are we. And what he means by that is, uh, if you think about it, every event in God's plan of salvation has happened, right? We had uh, hundreds of years of this Old Testament foreshadowing of prophecy, and then the Messiah has come, the Messiah has lived and died, uh, risen and ascended to heaven, the Spirit has been poured out. And so all that remains for, is for Christ to return, which could happen at any moment, right? So Peter isn't saying that Christ will return within these believers' lifetimes, but that there's nothing left to do for the accomplishment of salvation, and so the time is very short, right? It could happen at any moment. And so in light of that reality, the shortness of the time, uh, Peter is again commanding self-control and sobriety, right, as he's done before uh, in chapter 1. So sobriety uh, obviously means literal sobriety instead of drunkenness, but it also indicates this attitude of mind that we are to have that is the opposite of, of stupor or delusion. So Peter is really, in some sense, lining up this contrast to what he described in verse 3, right? The drinking parties, the or- orgies, the lawless idolatry. Uh, that's one way of living. And, now he, and he's describing the opposite here, that we are to live in sobriety. And he's going to describe what that looks like over the next few verses. Uh, but this idea of uh, living self-controlled, sober lives, it's this, this watchful living for the, the Lord's return, as we talked about in uh, chapter 1. We know he's returning, so we live in light of that reality. Uh, we are to resist the urge to live in a self-indulgent manner, to escape sufferings by uh, the use of alcohol or drugs or excessive entertainment or pleasure or whatever it is. We're to be temperate and self-controlled. And the nearness of Christ's coming should motivate the believer to strive for holiness and to be about the master's business, right? So if we are uh, just kind of playing around with sin, if we're fooling around with it, if we're, uh, if we're coddling it, then we're displaying a, a lack of awareness and a lack of the fruits of repentance, right? Christ said, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down, right? So we are to be serious about putting sin to death and to living uh, sober-minded, self-controlled, holy lives, um, Harold pointed out that uh, one who's exercising sound judgment will maintain the priority of seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6.33. And we are to do all of this, he says, for the sake of your prayers, uh, which is interesting. Clowney translated it as, uh, be self-controlled and sober-minded so that you can pray. In other words, these attributes, being self-controlled and sober-minded, equip us for prayer. That prayer is a thoughtful communication with the Lord. Um, and that, uh, you know, we need to be sober-minded to be able to effectively pray. Matthew Henry uh, related this to Matthew 26, 40 to 41, uh, describing this, you know, watch and pray as uh, Jesus, this is Jesus in the garden. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
We need to be praying earnestly and frequently for grace to stand up under temptations and to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And Bill Harrell, in his commentary, Let's Study First Peter, put it this way, to cultivate sound judgment and sobriety is a necessary prerequisite for performing our supreme duty, highest responsibility, and greatest privilege, namely prayer. The discipline of prayer heads up the list of our duties to Christ. This is so because prayer is the efficient means by which we desire and accomplish everything in our walk with Christ. Prayer is the enlightening and empowering foundation for fulfilling all that Peter will exhort us to do in verses 8 to 11. Yet prayer is more than the energizing force enabling us to do the will of God. It is our means of communion with Christ. It is the response of the soul to the saving grace of Christ. By prayer, we devote ourselves to our Redeemer before we launch into service for him. Right, so I, I like that emphasis, the, the reality that prayer is foundational for the Christian life. Right? It's a response to grace, and it's also kind of, it, it's the precursor to ministry, to service, to work, to all the things that we do. Prayer needs to come first uh, sequentially. Right? We can't do verses 8 to 11 without, verse, without the prayer that Peter describes in verse 7. Uh, so what are those things that we are to do? Peter says that we are to love one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Um, earnestly, this means uh, stretching, according to Clowney, to love one another in an extended, a stretching way in both depth and length and endurance. Uh, we are to keep stretching out in love for one another. It's to be an active, a serving love. And he describes that this love covers a multitude of sins, uh, this is a, a reference to Proverbs ten twelve, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. And it really made me think of 1 Corinthians 13, where uh, Paul describes that love keeps no record of wrongs, that love forgives and forgets. Love is necessary for the health of, of the body of Christ because we are sinners, right? We're still sinners. We're going to sin against each other until the day that the Lord takes us home. And so Christian love uh, must not be put off by the faults and the sins of the brethren, uh, but it should be quick to forgive one another. Um, if we can't stand to be around people who have offended us at one point in time, then we're constantly going to be hopping from church to church to church, and some people do that, right? They never forgive one another, and every couple years they're moving on to a new church because they've, they've stuck around long enough to be hurt, and then they're out, you know? And uh, that's, you know, that's the reality, is that it's only a matter of time before we hurt someone or someone is going to hurt us. And so forgiveness and reconciliation are vital for the body of Christ. And this earnest love, uh, you know, in other parts of Scripture, it's, the Christian life is described as a race, you know, a, like, a, like a running race, uh, like a marathon. And I tend to think of that as an individual event. But it struck me that the Christian life is not an individual event. It's a team event. Right, we're in this together. And so this earnest love means that we need to be concerned that everyone around us is making it to the finish line as well, which means that we're investing in one another despite this propensity that we have to hurt each other. So we have this earnest love, and then Peter commands us to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And Clowney pointed out that hospitality in this day and age had special relevance uh, because the apostles who traveled to the churches uh, depended on the hospitality of the members. They'd come into town and they'd stay with members of the churches while they were in town. Uh, but hospitality in our day obviously looks a little bit different, uh, but it still includes this, the basic idea of you know, having people in our homes, uh, just as it did then, 
And I think Christian hospitality is it's deeper than just hosting. Um, it's offering fellowship in Christ as well. I think that fellowship is a key part of it. It's providing an environment where um, the saints can be physically and spiritually refreshed by each other's company as we journey together to heaven. So it's another expression of this earnest love that he described in verse 8. And given the, um, the fragmentation of our society today, I think it's arguably more important than ever for us to learn how to do hospitality, to practice it well, uh, to create habits of uh, hospitality, of having each other in our homes, and to foster fellowship among the saints. Peter, uh, as always, he's done a, a really consistent job of getting at the heart attitude behind our actions as well throughout First Peter. And so he describes doing it without grumbling, right? The attitude matters. Um, and the, the reality is that hospitality is inconvenient, right? It's, it takes sacrifice. It takes time. It takes effort. It can be expensive. And so the attitude behind it is really important that we're not to serve one another grudgingly, but cheerfully. So that idea of, of service flows naturally, or can, you know, Peter, Peter has this logical flow here uh, in verses 10 to 12, talking about service more broadly now. Um, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Uh, so Peter is getting at here the purpose of the spiritual gifts that we have, which is to serve the body. And it's also the purpose of all of the resources that we have, our time, our skills, our money. Everything should be used in the master's service. And Peter describes that we are stewards here. He uses this specific word, stewards. We're stewards of spiritual gifts that are given by the Spirit for the good of the body, and we're stewards of the physical resources that we have. So if you think about a steward, a steward doesn't own the property, right? They don't own the property. They're managing it. It's someone else's property. And so this should be our attitude toward our resources as well, that God has given us these resources to use in his service. So the purpose of our gifts, the purpose of all that we have in some sense, is to be a blessing to others. And it's interesting as we think about this text in light of spiritual gifts specifically, um, sometimes I think we can get obsessed, or I, th- I think uh, this was my, in the church I grew up, this was an experience in, among the kind of young people in the church, especially like high school age, there was this kind of obsession of figuring out what your spiritual gift was. Um, and if we think we need to know our spiritual gift before we can serve, then we're completely missing the point, right? Peter's point here, he doesn't actually, he doesn't even list the gifts at all, if you look at it. The emphasis is on serving God with whatever you have and whoever you are, right? So the point is just serve the church where there's a need, and the gifting then becomes more apparent in the process of serving than it does from just introspection and trying to figure it out. So there's two examples that he lists here explicitly, uh, speaking and then serving. Uh, so speaking, this is teaching and preaching. Uh, Peter's describing uh, preaching of the word, not just casual conversation. And he describes it as the oracles of God, that, that it must be the pure word of God uh, and, sh- and should be delivered as such with reverence, with solemnity. Um, it's the duty of ministers to treat the word as oracles of God, as his very word, uh, to stay close to the word and not stray from it. And then regardless of leadership role, uh, Christians are called to speak the word to one another for mutual upbuilding, right? We're to encourage each other as long as it's called today, and all the more as you see the day approaching, um, as First Thessalonians 5 says, sort of speak the word to one another. And then he describes serving as well. Um, this could refer to uh, 
the deacons, to diaconal serving, or to just service in general. Uh, and I think it applies to both. And again, the, the idea here is that we're to serve with the best of our abilities to the degree of our resources, which come from God. All these are supplied by God, right? God gives the word that we speak to one another, and God gives the strength with which we serve one another. So we're to look to the Lord for the grace and, and the strength to carry this ministry out, not to rely on our own uh, strength, our own resources. Um, I think probably if you asked the deacons, they would agree that mercy ministry requires more than human patience uh, and more than human strength. Yeah, that's a great point. Thank you, Julie. So Julie's point, if, I, if uh, not everyone heard, was that hospitality doesn't require an immaculate lawn and a perfectly clean house, you know, and a, and a, a massive feast, right, for people that you you have people over and, you know, it's just kind of like more of a normal living life together. The emphasis should be on relationship, on relating to one another and encouraging one another and less on making, a, making it an event or a show. Yeah, thank you. And so the, the why of the service, right? Why are we to serve uh, the body? Well, it's all for the glory of God, as Peter says. And God is glorified in his saints emulating him by serving one another, just as Christ modeled service in washing the disciples' feet, uh, giving himself as an offering of sin. We have this, this modeling by Christ, and we are to do the same. And so when sinners who are saved by grace reject self-indulgence, uh, and self-centeredness, and instead start to act in these ways, sac- sacrificially meeting the needs of others, then the God is glorified, and we see that wisdom of God displayed, uh, because it's only God who could so radically transform a fallen being. Um, and I think that's part of what Paul is getting at in Ephesians 3, when he describes that uh, it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God might be uh, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, Ephesians 3.10. Right, it's the redemp- that God is glorified in the redemption of the church, and he's also glorified in this sanctification of the church. The church is displaying the wisdom and the glory of God um, as we uh, follow in the steps of Christ. Any other uh, thoughts or questions on that section? Yeah, when he says oracles, I think he means that it's the very word of God. Right? It's, the, it's, it's you know, kind of coming from the mouth of God, so to speak, and so we're to treat it with reverence and respect as such. Yeah. All right. Last paragraph here in chapter 4. Peter's returning to our response to suffering. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. All right, so verses 12 and 13. uh, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. 
So we've seen before, we've talked about before, that suffering's not an accident, right? that God is sovereign over all things, uh, that it's part of God's plan for his children as we follow in his steps. And Peter, again, uh, this is not the first time he's done this either, but he again addresses them as beloved, right? as loved by God. Again, reminding them as we think about suffering, reminding his readers that suffering is not an indication of God's displeasure, right? that God planned suffering for his own son. Right? And that's the, the paradigm we're to have as we think about this. You know, the human way of thinking is to assume that our circumstances reflect uh, God's love for us, right? but that's not true at all. Right? Suffering does not mean that God's hand is against us but that, or that we're cursed in some way, but we are beloved of God. And so he, he tells us, that as we think about suffering, not to be surprised, as we talked about earlier, as though something strange were happening to you, right? This is not, a, it's not an accident. Uh, God's not out of control because this is happening. Um, we should expect some measure of suffering. And we know that we're in this uh, cosmic warfare, right? The, you know, Satan has rebelled against God. We're in this, uh, the domain of darkness, so to speak. The prince of the power of the air still has some sway over this earth. We experience the fall, the curse. Um, and we know that uh, the, the world hates God. It hates his church. Satan bears unceasing malice toward the church. I think of Psalm 2 and Revelation 12 and so many other places in Scripture. And so there's, we're caught up in that conflict, right? And so we've got this tension, this suffering that we experience, this persecution uh, because of the hatred of Satan uh, and the world toward us. But God is using that suffering, right? It's not out of his control. And so Peter says that that suffering is happening um, to test you. So he's again getting at the, the reality that there's a purpose behind everything that we experience. There's a purpose in the trials. Uh, this is very similar to the language he used in chapter 1. We talked about that metallurgy analogy. Uh, God is using suffering to refine our faith, to test its metal, to prove its worth. Matthew Henry said, Though they may be sharp and fiery, yet they are designed only to try, not to ruin them, to try their sincerity, strength, patience, and trust in God. Um, Clowney uh, pointed out that God is committed to destroying sin in his new creation. And so uh, we can, uh, you know, th- those trials then show that God has, has already begun that great work of renewal uh, in us. And so we experience these, these trials to test you. Um, and he also describes them then as sharing in Christ's sufferings. Right? These, the suffering we experience is a sharing in Christ's sufferings. Paul uses similar language in Philippians 3. Philippians 3, 8 to 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So we have this idea of sharing in Christ's sufferings. Um, and uh, Harold pointed out here, I'm going to read, read some more Harold. He says, He does not mean by this that our sufferings have an atoning value, as did those of our Redeemer, still less that our sufferings are penal, for the Savior has borne the full penalty of our sins for us. What is meant by sharing Christ's sufferings is that through our union with Christ, our sufferings become productive of good, as his sufferings were productive of glory. Right, so it's important to note here that sharing in Christ's sufferings 
has no, it's not redemptive, right? It's not somehow atoning for our sin in any way, uh, but that there's a similar purpose that God has in Christ's sufferings and in our sufferings. And really, um, uh, our sufferings are following his steps, right? We partake of his sufferings uh, by following his steps, not contributing to the atonement. This idea of sharing in Christ's sufferings really gets to the reality of union with Christ. There's this shared experience uh, between Christ and his bride um, of suffering. And so we share in Christ's sufferings in that, ex- in that sense. But Christ also shares in our sufferings too. Or you think about uh, Paul on the Damascus Road, and Christ says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? He's, he's in, the, in the sufferings with his people as well. He's not abstracted from them somehow. And so Clowney described this sharing uh, between Christ and the church as a participation in his sufferings and a participation in the glory that is going to be revealed. So it's both things. They both uh, flow from one to another. Uh, The reality of suffering for Christ's sake is a pledge in that sense of the glory that will follow. We know that we're following that same pattern of Christ that we brought to see him face to face and to enter into that glory. So sharing in Christ's sufferings, um, that includes being insulted for the name of Christ. Um, we read Matthew uh, 10 to 11 last week, I think, as well. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Right, there's this blessing that comes with uh, persecution. We talked about the example of Paul and Silas, I think, as well, singing in prison, how they have this otherworldly uh, perspective. And the, the sanctifying blessings of chapter 1 that come along with this, uh, of, with all of our sufferings. And the reality is that we have cause to rejoice in the midst of our sufferings in the knowledge that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We have this great inheritance. Um, God will use those sufferings as servants for our good, uh, for the increase of our faith and our joy in him. And this uh, section of verse 13 and 14 kind of gives the sense that the sufferings we experience now will actually heighten our enjoyment of the glory to come. Um, we see that in, ver- in chapter 1 as well. On the last day, we'll rejoice in the glory and the honor and the praise given to Christ uh, through or because of our sufferings. It's important to remember that Peter reminds us that we are not alone uh, in our sufferings. We have this great uh, asset and comfort to us in our trials, and that is that we have been given the Holy Spirit. He says the Spirit of glory, uh, the Spirit of God. Christ described the Spirit as the Comforter in John 16, and so this Spirit, who is the Comforter, is with us in all of our trials. Uh, the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and he helps support and sustain us through them until we are brought to glory. So we're never alone. We're never unsupported in the trials. Um, and sometimes we even experience greater intimacy with the Lord as we're forced to rely on him more and more. Um, that should be ideally what happens. So Harold put that idea this way. He said, there's nothing quite like walking through the valley of the shadow of death to convince us that our Lord is with us indeed, resting his hand of sustaining power and rewarding provision lovingly upon us because we experience that in a, in a new way that we are not alone but that God is with us. All right, so Peter here has been describing the good and sanctifying uh, benefits of sufferings, the fact that we're not alone, that God is with us. But not all suffering is good. So Peter makes that very clear in verse 15. 
right? That there's a kind of, there's a right way to suffer and there's a wrong way to suffer. Um, there's a kind of suffering to avoid and a kind of suffering to embrace. And so he describes here in verse 15 that we're never to uh, suffer uh, for for crimes, right? For doing, for committing sin. That is not the right way to, to suffer. We should not suffer penally. There's no reward or value in suffering for the sake of our own sin, right? We're to be putting sin to death. And so the interesting thing about this, the crime idea here, so let none of you see, suffer as a murderer, as a thief, or an evildoer, as a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Um, in some parts of the Roman Empire at this time, it was treated as a crime to be a Christian. So he's kind of comparing these two types of crimes, that there's a crime that you shouldn't suffer for, um, but there's a crime that you should suffer for and not be ashamed of, right? And that is being a disciple of Christ. So being persecuted for being a Christian is not something to be ashamed of, but something to uh, rejoice in. We count it an honor uh, to suffer reviling for the name of Christ. So he's encouraging them to stand firm in their profession, not to shrink from it. Christ said in Mark 8, 38, for whoever is shamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Right, a similar call not to be ashamed of the gospel. And Peter knows intensely and personally what it is to deny Christ, right, and to feel the shame of doing so. Right? We think about uh, Peter's life. And so here he's writing out of that experience and commending the readers, you know, not to do that. He's telling them, maintain your profession, stand firm in it. Don't shrink from the consequences of proclaiming the truth because we know what the final verdict will be. We know who sits on the throne of heaven. And so it's that final uh, verdict that he comes to in verses 17 and 18. Peter says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? He describes this judgment uh, that begins at the household of God. Um, Clowney describes this as um, this judgment of the household of God means purification of the people of God. Right? God's people are now, they're his temple, they're his chosen people, his bride. God is not judging us punitively because we are in Christ. Right? So he's not talking about punitive judgment here but he's referring to purification, right? This, the fiery trials that we experience are this purifying, kind of sanctifying uh, judgment in the sense Peter is using here. Uh, and so Peter says it begins, this testing, this furnace of affliction that purifies begins with the household of God. And so Christ bore the judgment of the household of God, right? So that, does, that judgment, so to speak, doesn't uh, destroy us, but there yet remains judgment for those outside of Christ. And so God's justice uh, as described here, kind of begins with the household of God, but it doesn't stop there, right? It, it consummates in the eternal judgment of those who reject Christ. So Peter quotes Proverbs 11.31, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Right Now Peter here uh, is not, by quoting this, he's not calling into question the security of our salvation. He's already told us that it's kept for us, we are guarded for it, Right, it's secure, but he's describing that the road through the afflictions, the road to it, is difficult. That the fiery trials uh, take perseverance. They're not easily endured, right? but they don't destroy us because God has this saving purpose for his people. Um, but God does not, that, you know, that same saving purpose doesn't exist for the wicked uh, who will experience the eternal judgment of God. 
And so then summing up really all that Peter has been saying here in verse 19, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So he's summing up really our entire response to suffering in some sense very, very succinctly here. Uh, And he's saying really two things. Uh, Reiterating Psalm 34, that we are to do good in the face of suffering, just just as Christ did not revile or threaten. We're not to retaliate, we are to do good. And then again, he he talked about the sovereignty of God here, uh, that uh, we do not suffer randomly or out of control, but according to God's will. God's infinite wisdom and power and love for his people are at work in this holy will, even though it includes suffering. And so to, um, to help us grasp that or, or rest in that truth, he tells us of the, the character of God here, right? That God is not capricious or take delight in the pain of his children, but he is the sovereign cre- uh, creator of the universe, and he's faithful. And so this, I, these two words here, faithful creator, are so helpful. We think of God as the creator, we know that he's over all things, right? God feeds the birds. He numbers the hairs on our heads. Every day of our lives is ordained from him from the, before the beginning of time, right? And as the creator, we also have to remember that God has the right to shape our lives as he wills, right? He is the potter, and we are the clay. We're to rest in that knowledge that God is God and we are not. Um, and then we trust the infinite wisdom and knowledge and beauty of God as creator. We see displayed in creation and we can trust then that he, he's also weaving all the events of our lives, all the suffering of our lives, into a beautiful tapestry of his grace. And God is not just creator, but he's faithful. Um, he's, this, he's our faithful redeemer. Right? And that faithfulness is demonstrated nowhere more clearly than on the cross. Right? That, that God went to the absolute greatest extent to redeem us, to save us. And so in light of the cross then, Peter is exhorting us, to trust our souls, right, to the one who um, demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. Let me stop there. We need to set up for the fellowship meal. So if you're able, please stick around and help set up some tables and chairs. And let me pray for us real quick, and we'll close. Heavenly Father, we come before you. Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this text. We pray that you would continue uh, conforming us into your image and your likeness. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace as we think about uh, trials and persecution, the suffering of our life, of our lives. Give us grace to trust you, to rest in your sovereignty, uh, to rest in your will, your purposes, um, and to know that they are good. We thank you that you have redeemed us in Christ. We pray that that would be uh, the, the reality that shapes our perspective as we consider all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.